I am Bruce Stanley, and it is my pleasure and privilege to work for you. Uh, though you may not think that I am on the payroll here at Southeast Raleigh Table, truth of the matter is, is that I work for your Methodist Home for Children. And so I am indeed uh, one of your staff. I want to say just a, a couple of words about who we are as a ministry and how it is that we are engaged as we stand shoulder by shoulder uh, working to transform and to uh, redeem lives. And then we're going to look at the Word of God and consider how it is that we're trying to be faithful to this Word of Scripture. In a given year, uh, Methodist Home for Children will serve about 1,500 children, youth, and their families. In the last fiscal year, we served children from 79 of North Carolina's 100 counties, and it's not uncommon for us to serve uh, youth from each one of the 100. We are best known for residential care, perhaps, uh, by the state, and we have 12 residential facilities. We are the largest contract provider for the Division of Juvenile Justice for therapeutic residential alternatives for young felons to keep them out of prison. We also do foster care, therapeutic foster care, uh, adoptions, and last year we had 20 adoptions out of the foster care system uh, where kids found a forever family, which is something that is just ought to be celebrated. Uh, we have two early childhood programs, including one that we just opened a few blocks from here in the villages of Washington Terrace, uh, the Barbara H. Curtis Center, which is on Millburnie, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later as well. We also do work in-home with family preservation, family reunification, and some in-home drug treatment, as well as some workforce readiness. You know whom it is that we serve, this 1,400 a year. And another way to do the math, with intake and discharge on any given day, there'll be about 500 children uh, in care of our Methodist Home for Children. Of this uh, number, this 1,400, tell me what percentage of these children and youth are coming from places where there is family fracture and only one identifiable parent? What percentage? Somebody said 90. The answer is 80. The point is, it's really high. And when I say one identifiable parent, is that going to be mom or dad? What percentage of these homes, uh, the, the, of the children that we serve, have cyclical and generational patterns of low educational achievement and subsequently poverty? What percentage? And that's probably about 80 also. I should have given you the answers. Uh, and the, the sad truth is, uh, in our culture, poverty usually wears the face of a woman or a child. And, and so you know that. My third question would be, what percentage of these homes are substance affected? And is, where is there substance abuse, either the children, the youth, the parents, or both? What percentage would that be? And that's, that's probably about 75. So this is uh, the least, the last, and the lost are those whom we serve. I always ask for three things uh, when I'm in front of a congregation because we are Trinitarian Christians. First thing we need from you is that we need uh, for you to pray for us. The needs of these children when they come into our care are so significant. The demands that are placed upon clinical staff, upon foster families, and, um, and those who have opened not just their hearts, but their homes to these children, they are profound. And so we can't be sustained, we can't flourish without the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need you to pray for us. So each morning, bow your heads over your cup of coffee, over your keyboard, uh, wherever it is that you're starting your day, and uh, lift up Methodist Home for Children. Second thing we need is for you to be a witness. If you are a Methodist and an official member of a church, uh, you've taken a vow, which includes prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. And for, we need for you uh, to be an advocate for us. One of the great challenges we face in the state of North Carolina, we have not had an increase in the rate for foster care families for 12 years. In Wake County, 
the average cost per day to board a dog is $35. Anybody here ever board a dog in a kennel while they went somewhere? Some, somebody's done that. $35 a day is the average cost. The amount paid to a foster family for a DSS foster placement uh, is $18 a day. Now that's not half, uh, but that's close enough half that uh, ought to make us all weep and we really need an increase in those rates uh, as well as in many others. And we need for you to be an advocate and to be a witness and to let the powers that be know, know that these things need to be funded. And we need, final thing I ask for is that we need funding from you for each one of those 1,400 children, youth, and their families at the beginning of the year to cover the true cost of care because we don't receive the true cost of care for any of the services we provide. We have to raise about $1,600 uh, for each one of those family units. And we began a program several years ago called 1K for One Kid uh, in order to market that funding gap. There are people here who, out of the uh, blessings that God has given them, have done that themselves. And we have many congregations in which they have put that into their budget and said, we're going to do one kid or we're going to do two kids per year. And I would uh, lift that up for you all going forward. And now I want us to turn our attention to the uh, reading of God's Word in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is the 17th chapter of Luke. And it is Jesus healing the ten lepers. Uh, leprosy uh, was a symbolic disease uh, in that day, and it still is in our own day. Someone whom you want to avoid or keep your distance from, you will refer to, treated them as if they were a leper. Uh, Michael Foucault, the uh, great philosopher, says that each generation has its own symbolic illness, and sometimes it is illnesses, and he says that he thinks in the previous century it transitioned from being leprosy to being mental illness and madness. Uh, some have said it was uh, HIV or AIDS, uh, but at any rate, the leper was a symbolic figure. And in Israel at the time, in which this story is taking place, while lepers were to be avoided and why many would pity them, there also was a sense in which they had special status because it was believed that after death, they didn't have to worry about being in limbo or purgatory, that they were going to get to go straight to heaven because they'd already had their hell on earth. And so the leper, as you're encountering these ten here in the story, uh, know that they did occupy a distinctive place. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten lepers approached him, keeping their distance. They were required by the law to keep their distance. In fact, not only were they required by the law to keep their distance, but if the lepers were going to be out in public traveling, they had to hire somebody to go in advance of them and to yell before they came, unclean, unclean. And as I'm reading this story, I'm thinking if I'm going to be honest about who Bruce is, I probably ought to have that person walking in front of me trying to warn folks that uh, here comes a sinner, here comes a sinner. And so they called out, not unclean, unclean, but they called out themselves, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Many people believe, many scholars, modern scholars, believe that Jesus was a Pharisee. And the prayer shawl that he had that had the knots when the uh, Syrophoenician woman comes and grabs the uh, hem of his garment, uh, that would be a Pharisee's prayer shawl. And what Jesus is telling them to do is to be obedient to the law, that if you have had leprosy and you want to be declared clean, uh, you must first go to the temple. 
and show yourself to the priest and let the priest examine your skin and look and make that pronouncement. So Jesus is telling them to be obedient to God's word. Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they are going, they were made clean. And I love that passage because Jesus has told them, this is what you must do. And it says, in being obedient to Jesus, their cleanliness occurs. As they were being obedient to God, they are being made clean through that act of obedience. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He threw himself on the ground at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And this one was a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were Jews. Many people, when they're looking at this conflict that occurred between the people who worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem and between the ones who are worshipping in the temple in Samaria, they were thinking these must be people from an entirely different background, but that is not the case. The big issue was that the Samaritans had intermarried, and they weren't just marrying from the uh, tribes of Israel. They were intermarrying with Assyrians and which, with other local people. So most of the objections that the people of Israel had to those who were Samaritans really would be based on ethnicity and intermarriage. And that could either be depressing uh, or encouraging because we know that we didn't invent this foolishness that we suffer from. And Jesus said, we're not ten made clean. The other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go on your way, for your faith has made you well. And this is the word of God, and we together are the people of God, so we say, thanks be to God. It is a remarkable thing when these lepers come down the road. They've been preceded by their crier, unclean, unclean. And as they approach Jesus, they do not keep the distance that would have been expected. Uh, Perhaps they kept it physically. They sure did not keep it emotionally or spiritually. Someone had already been doing ministry with them and teaching them about who Jesus was because when they see him, they call him master and he is the one to whom they go for healing and they say, have mercy upon us, God. And Jesus looks upon them and in fact, he has mercy and tells them, go and show yourselves to the priests and as they are going, they are made clean. And what Jesus is doing here is what Jesus is trying to do now. He is trying to diminish the distance that exists between us as people and between God and his followers. And Jesus does not want there to be any distance between any of us. He wants all of us to live intimately with him and with one another. And so he is trying to do away with and to diminish this distance and use this act of healing so he might restore them into full community. And if you were going to ask me uh, one way to characterize what we do at our Methodist Home for Children, one of the things I would say that we're always trying to do is get rid of the distance that exists between people. I know that uh, Lisa and I know that Donna both from time to time have talked about uh, how to otherize and get rid of otherizing people And Jesus is trying to do that, and we're trying to do that. One of the ways that we try to do that really is with foster care. And a few years ago, um, it was uh, a little later than this in the time of the year. It was probably November instead of October. Uh, But we had put out our list for our angel tree. We aren't the only people who do that. A lot of agencies uh, will uh, share and, and engage in an exercise that is just like that. And we had uh, somebody who came into our lobby 
uh, I happened to be standing in the lobby at that time, which meant that I either needed a cup of ice or coffee. And so as I'm uh, in the lobby, this person comes in, we engage ourselves in a few minutes of conversation. She lets me know that uh, she is there in order to pick up this Christmas list. And as she takes the uh, Christmas list, uh, she thanks me and heads on out the door. And I go back to my office and barely seated when I hear somebody kind of clearing their throat. And I look up and there's that woman standing in my door and she's looking at the Christmas list. And she said, do you have a moment? Well, it's too late for me to say no, <laughs> you're already here. I said, yes, I do. And I said, is there something I can help you with? And she's pointing at it and she says, I don't like this. And I said, what don't you like? She says, I don't think you're doing a very good job with these kids. And I said, well, explain to me. She said, I'm looking at this Christmas list. She said, the first thing on this is an Xbox 360. Do you have any idea how much that costs? Well, as a matter of fact, I knew exactly how much it cost. Uh, I had a son in the house, a teenager at the time, and he wanted an Xbox 360 so badly he could barely see straight. And when he's telling me he wants an Xbox 360, I'm telling him people in hell want glasses of ice water. You know, but, but that don't mean they always get them. And I also told him if he wanted an Xbox 360, instead of hitting up mom and dad, um, go get a job, <laughs> and, and eventually he did, as a matter of fact, and he did get his Xbox 360. And so I'm able to tell her and quote the exact amount, and she said, I don't think this child for, should be asking for this, and I don't think you should be putting a list out there in public. You aren't doing your job right. And I said, well, let me invite you to flip the script. I said, what we ask those children to do was to fill out a wish list. And we didn't put any limits on their wishes or imagination. And that child happens to be sitting in a classroom at school, talking about the holidays, dreaming about toys. And I said, I can't think of better proof that we're doing our job than the fact that that child put that at the top of the list and they don't realize they're a second class citizen. They don't know that they're a foster kid, they just know that they're a kid. They don't know that they ought to have limited dreams, aspirations, hopes, and goals for their life. They think they deserve the same thing as every other child they interact with. I said, that list to me is a beautiful thing. And I, she wasn't exactly buying all that I was selling. And I'm used to that. I'm married. <laughs> and so she said, are you telling me you think I ought to go buy this? Xbox 360 for this child? I said, I'm telling you that you ought to go home. And whomever it is that you live in community with, you ought to bow your heads and pray. And I'm not going to tell you to do that. I said, but you go pray and you let God tell you what to do. And I don't know the end of that story. I have not seen that person since. I did not bother to track or chart and go back in our uh, room and uh, look under that child's name and to see if they'd gotten it. I just gave that one over to God and, and just let that one go. But day in and day out, what we are trying to do with the children who are in our care is to let them know that they are children of God, that they are created in the image of God with capacities and gifts, that they have a beautiful and wonderful life now and that God has a preferred future for them and we want them to live into that and to have no sense that they are less than magnificent and wonderful and spectacular people. And we don't just do that uh, with those who are at a distance 
because they've been taken into care in the foster care system and maybe even don't know names or place of origins. Uh, but we're trying to eliminate the gap and the distance that exists between persons who have been raised in generational and cyclical systemic poverty and low educational achievement. When we opened the Barbara H. Curtis Center, and we did that the uh, day after Labor Day weekend, I think that was September the 4th, uh, that was a result of a vision that the Downtown Housing Improvement Corporation had. And when they bought that 23 acres uh, out of foreclosure, they tried to have some great sensitivity for the current residents and promised that all the residents there would have a place to stay and that they would be uh, able to be part of that community. And then they interviewed the current residents as well as former residents and said, uh, we want to make certain that this community continues to grow and flourish. And if we're going to do that, what is the most important thing we can do here? And almost without exception, they said, the residents indicated a need for quality early childhood education. And they said, our kids don't have the same experiences and opportunities other people do. And we know they're behind the very first day of school. And what are they saying? They're saying there's a distance. They're saying that there's a gap. And quite frankly, when you start school behind, you don't ever really have a chance to catch up. And so it is that they came to us and we heard their cry and said about this business of, uh, of setting up the uh, Barbara H. Curtis Center. And some people will ask, Methodist Home, you're the largest provider for juvenile justice and those kind of services. What are you doing with an early childhood program? And the truth of the matter is, is that we don't want to do work for juvenile justice. We, we don't want to be in the business of re remediation. Uh, we want to be about intervention and prevention. We want healthy lives from the beginning. And you could predict who's going to be a high school dropout and be substance affected and who's going to have trouble with law enforcement. It is a child who is raised birth through five in an environment in which there is low stimulus and high stress. You want to figure out who's going to succeed in school, graduate, avoid involvement with law enforcement system? Flip that script. That's a child, birth through five, who's raised in an environment in which there is high stimulus and low stress, and everything is predictable, and everything is ordered, and everything is wonderful and engaging and challenging. And so it is that we have a completely blended program. And we have children who are typically developing, who are living in some of these uh, uh, gentrified mansions in Oakwood that are coming. Uh, we've got children who are part of the NC pre-K program. And to be in that program, you're coming from a home that's 25% below the federal poverty level. Uh, we've got children with physical disabilities and some with developmental disabilities, some that have been diagnosed and some that are emerging. And they are all blended in the same classrooms with the same evidence-based curriculum, same evidence-based discipline. And the beauty of having a blended model is which child does better when they're in a blended environment? Every child. It's not just simply a low performer or somebody who's been struggling that gets lifted up by being in with high performers, but the high performers do better as well. We all do better when there's no distance between us and when we are engaged in the task of living together. A couple weeks before the center opened, somebody called, lived in the community, could have probably walked there in two and a half minutes, but they felt distance. They're looking at this beautiful building and just thinking there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be welcome there or that I'm going to ever have a chance to have my child in such a beautiful school. And on the phone, they said, it's probably not going to do any good, but I'm calling to ask. And they said that I've qualified for a low-income voucher for my child, uh, but 
I couldn't get to work and get to the child care center where uh, he had been accepted, both. I didn't have enough money for transportation for both of those, and so I had to go to work, and my voucher has lapsed, so I'm sure that I can't come. And the director said, uh, don't be sure at all. Uh, we'll work with you, and uh, we're familiar with the voucher process, and by the way, we'll pay for it until you, we can get your voucher approved. So come on. And then they paused and said, but I'm not sure that uh, you're going to be able to handle my child and he's probably not going to be welcomed anyway, and said, why? And said, well, he's got a pretty severe autism spectrum disorder, and you may not be equipped to handle that. And we said, come on, you know, you know bring your child over. We want, we want to meet him. We want to meet you, and, uh, and we will have a place. And then she sighed and said, but you don't know how severe this uh, spectrum disorder is. She said, my child is uh, right at four years of age, and he's still wearing a diaper. So not potty trained, and I'm sure that's going to disqualify us. And the principal basically says, we haven't heard anything yet that scares us. Uh, this pretty much sounds like what we do uh, at our Methodist Home for Children, and that child deserves an opportunity to learn and to grow and develop to the, the full extent of their ability, and you're going to be welcome here because we are a people who believe that there ought to be no distance between God's children that they ought to all be aggregated and live underneath the lordship of the one who is love. And so it is that when that woman came, she walked through the door with her child and could barely speak. She was just boohooing, and tears were running down her face. And as I'm reading this story out of Luke's gospel, when it says that there was one of that ten who just was so overwhelmed with gratitude that he went back, and he didn't speak to Jesus, but just threw himself uh, on the ground at Jesus' feet. I'm thinking this woman was that one. We had other parents who came on that first day of school, grinning ear to ear, and happy to be there and glad and delighted. But each one of those tears that that woman was crying was a prayer, and it was a prayer of thanks and, and a word uh, that went from her cheeks to our eyes and uh, up into God's spirit and God's soul. And it is a beautiful and wonderful work that we do. We know that there is a tremendous amount of need and hurt in our community. We believe that it is God himself who is calling us to try to fashion a world so that all children, youth, and families feel welcomed and so that all have an opportunity to grow into God's preferred future for them and to live lives that are beautiful and wonderful witnesses. And for the privilege of being in mission and ministry with you, I stand here this day and say thank you and amen. Well. And one of the ways that we offer our thanks to God is by returning to God the resources with which we have all been blessed. And so we come now uh, to put some form to our faith as we offer gifts and tithes for the day. <clears throat> 